Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. On today's episode, we were lucky to have a conversation with Ariel Patrick. Ariel is the Chief Communications Officer of Ariel Investments, a more than $16 billion global asset management firm. Ariel brings a very unique perspective to the podcast today. Her career spans media relations, government affairs, philanthropy, marketing, internal communications, executive leadership communications, branding, creative, reputation management, risk assessment, investor relations, and so much more. At Ariel Investments, she recently helped announce the firm's new private equity fund, an almost $1.5 billion first fund, one of the largest first funds in history. She also recently led the firm's large-scale rebranding. We discussed these things and a lot more in the episode. Ariel has spent her entire career as a chief advisor to Fortune 500 public and private company CEOs and boards on a number of topics. This conversation is packed with insights about communication, leadership, and the changing story of finance in our rapidly evolving world. And so without further delay, I'm so excited to bring you Ariel Patrick. Ariel, what a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from today? Thank you so much, Ross, for having me. I am in my office in New York, where I am proud to be a native, born and bred Manhattanite. We're a rare breed, but we exist. But really, thank you so much for including me in this podcast and just really excited to share with your stakeholders the little I know. I appreciate your modesty, and I would let our stakeholders listening know that I think you know quite a bit, given your role and the success that you've had so far. Ariel, we don't have a lot of time, and you're busy, and there's so much to talk about. Let's dive right in. Can you just begin by sharing your story at a high level and what you do today at Ariel Investments? Great. I Goodness, what do I do all day? I would say the first and foremost thing I do is solve problems. I am the Chief Communications Officer at Ariel Investments, where I oversee marketing communications, both internal and external, as well as community engagement, public affairs, philanthropy, events, and brand. Recently, we just got through a very large effort, which was the rebranding of our firm after 40 years. The firm got a beautiful facelift, and I'm just really proud to show the world how we've updated our messaging and how we're just really aiming to be more contemporary and accessible to people across the spectrum, people that want to work for Ariel and or people who may or may not be clients. And my secret hope is that after listening to this podcast, some of the young people who are in your orbit will express some curiosity in joining us in the future. But in all seriousness, what I really do is protect the firm's reputation and spend a lot of time thinking about risks, opportunities, how to harness those opportunities while also keeping in mind that everything is a two-edged sword. So I am lucky to also be on the operating committee at the firm that enables me to be part of the decision-making about strategic decisions that we're making before 
there is a communications consideration. I do think that in the industry, far too often you'll find that communications professionals are not at the table in the strategic part of business development. Therefore, they are asked to message or defend decisions that they had no part in. And what I try to do is help put every decision that we make through the reputational risk filter early and as quickly as possible so that really we can go to bed at night knowing that we're serving our community well. I love the way you frame your role. I also think it's so wonderful and very important that you as the steward of the brand ultimately and the reputation of the firm are involved in some of those decisions and are at that table informing those decisions, thinking through the risks that that may pose to various stakeholder groups and to the firm's long-term success. Your story is such an interesting story. I appreciate you diving right into what you do. You studied classics at Princeton. You wrote a thesis about public relations and the relationship between Nero and Seneca. You had a long career, a very successful career, I should say, in in PR at Edelman before and other firms, Weber Shandwick. Um, How does your academic background and your PR background, how has that influenced your work at Ariel today? I need to start by saying this particularly to the undergraduates or recent grads who are listening, you do not need to study anything related to finance or economics in order to be really good in the industry. I I do remember when I decided to be a classics major, my parents were so proud because they said, this is the last time you're able to just really study and enjoy academia. And that's what I did. I did so many internships every summer. I was that woman who had textbooks stacked up on her desk from the moment she started her first job. I had one book on private market M&A, another one on public market M&A. I had a glossary of definitions of every financial word. And if it wasn't in there, I was holding my phone under the table on, on Investopedia constantly. Whenever I heard an acronym that I didn't know, I would look it up. And I also gave myself assigned reading. So I did not begin a workday for at least the first three to five years of my career. If I had not read all the top stories in the Wall Street Journal, Barron's front to back, Barron's was particularly useful because it helped me understand asset management really, really intricately. And, you know, of course there were sort of other top tier pubs that I would always have to look at, but I really just forced myself to be a student in the beginning. So, you know, listen, I, I'm a nerd who loves the humanities, who, figured out how to make some money after that. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you saying that. I often tell people I'm a wannabe athlete, actually a nerd. And so from one unabashedly nerdy person to another, I'm, I'm grateful for you speaking up for all, for all of us nerds out there. And I appreciate you talking about how you don't need a finance or econ degree to get into finance. One thing that you and I share in common, I actually studied journalism and PR myself in college. I have a bachelor's in journalism in strategic communications with an emphasis on public relations as as my degree, technically. And oftentimes when students, especially earlier career professionals, when they look at my resume, they look me up before speaking engagements there. Sometimes I get this question like, so I see you like studied journalism and worked at Twitter and market, like, you know, and growth and go to market. Like, how did you end up in finance? You know, you also prove that you don't need a finance degree or to start your career necessarily directly in finance to make waves in the capital markets. I love your your approach to learning finance. Very similar, right? Investopedia was also my go-to. What other advice do you have for, as we're speaking to the student audience, what other advice do you have for non-finance majors who nonetheless want to create an impact in the industry like you have? 
I think first and foremost, I got some really amazing advice from someone who said that when you're entering an industry where very few people look like you, you should not spend your time only looking for mentors who look like you. You know, of course, I'm very lucky to work for Melody Hobson, who I have a ton in common with as, you know, a Princeton grad, a Black woman. But early in my career, to be honest, most of my accomplishments were made possible by white men who I was able to form connections with because we're simply humans. So, you know, before making assumptions about what you have in common with somebody or whether they'll be invested in your journey, just start with the root of what makes a person a person. One of my best mentors, Scott Clemens, he's the chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman, although I think he has a fancier title now. He was at the time. He was my one of my first clients that really trusted me. He let me run with things. I was maybe 23, 24, running him down to CNBC, preparing his talking points. And he really let me just really hold the reins. The reason we were able to connect was simply because we were both Princetonians and he was also a classics major. And I remember he went to the university recently, or maybe it was several years ago, and actually went to the library to find my thesis and sent me a picture, right? That's a mentor. And, you know, if you were to look at the two of us side by side, you certainly would not think that we have a ton in common. So it's really just about seeking out people who know what you want to know and have decision-making power in the places where you want to be. Mm -hmm. And forging those relationships. We're really great friends today. The only other thing I'll say is that, of course, when you're seeking mentors, make sure you remember that it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. And so no one is going to invest in your career long-term if you don't bring something back. So one of the things that I used to do with a lot of my mentors was send a little weekly newsletter, press or news or industry updates that I saw that I thought they would be interested in. It kind of became a little bit of a viral thing. I would just send that email around on Fridays or Sundays, depending on the week, and just say, hey, I thought you might find this interesting, or this reminded me of you. Happy to talk about what I'm seeing and from where I sit. Just because you're young doesn't mean you don't have anything to add. Wow, Ariel, you set the bar so high. <laughs> I have a lot of mentors in my life as well, who I feel like I owe all of my success to. As well as to a lot of luck, and you know, I'll claim hard work as well, uh, you know, and take some responsibility. But a lot of times, when I'm speaking to our students, they're like, "How have you cultivated all these mentors, and how do you add value?" And I thought I was giving them this really sophisticated answer, saying, "You know, send them an article from time to time that's relevant to them." For all of our students listening, you just heard Ariel set the bar so much higher, even for our senior leaders listening um, who have mentors still to this day that they look up to. A weekly newsletter is just truly next level, Ariel, and like so impressive. Thank you for sharing that. I, I want to shift into communications and, and your role at Ariel a little bit more because clearly, you know, throughout your career, you've been an excellent communicator, even with your mentors, right? Having a systematic, regular communication that adds value. When we talk to whether students, early, mid-career professionals, sort of mid-later career professionals, I'm surprised at how often I have to share, you know, that one of the most important skills for ascending into leadership in finance or any industry is communication. It's emotional intelligence, right? It is how we speak with and communicate with others. What are some of the communication skills that you think would benefit every finance professional, young or experienced? What advice would you offer our listeners for acquiring those communication skills? I always say that excellent communication is actually bred from excellent listening. So 
the first thing that you want to do is make sure that you have a deep understanding of whoever the other party is, whether it be a stakeholder that you're sending a communication to or a client or prospect you're trying to sell something to or really anyone else that you have a relationship with. You have to first make sure that you have a deep understanding of what they want, what they need, what they're worried about, what terrifies them, what keeps them up at night, what their hopes and dreams are. If you don't understand those things, you're not prepared to engage in a meaningful way. And so a big part of that is just being inquisitive and asking questions before you go into putting pen to paper or drafting a pitch or building a deck. And I do think that far too often people view best practice in communications or relationship building as sort of a templated approach. People are always repurposing decks that worked for the last client or pulling case studies from another company to to approach another. Every person, every institution is unique and you'll only be able to effectively communicate if you think about all the risks and opportunities associated with what it is that you're presenting to that person. And same thing goes for what I call we're dealing with today, which is the social reckoning, right? Of the pandemic and beyond. After the murder of George Floyd, I've seen so many companies take this almost aggressively proactive and nervous stance where no matter what happens, they feel that they are pressured to respond or they have to say something. And one of the pieces of advice I give to my peers at other companies is first think about what you have to add to the conversation. First understand whether you're bringing new insights or at least directing your audience to someone else who knows better what the solution should be. If you don't have anything productive to say, it's just performance. It's just words. And, you know, again, that that's bred from listening, learning, taking notes and engaging with experts who perhaps know more than you. I remember we, my team actually just recently had a, we had a, a, a debate. So there was a, I won't say which holiday it was, you know, you know how there's all these affinity months. So there's right now we're in black history month, which of course we have a lot to talk about. It was another affinity group month. And we were sitting around saying, what are we posting for X month? And I said, well, what do we have to add? Everyone was like, I don't know. I just thought we'd say happy X month. We see this group of people. And I said, well, why is someone looking for aerial investments to say that? And so what we pushed the team to do was actually do research on which other institutions actually had resources for how to be an advocate to that group. And so what we ended up posting was actually a laundry list of here are the organizations that you should be looking at if you want resources for how to be an ally. These are the people that we trust and we know best. Go to their page. That to me is more actionable than pretending that we know something that we honestly didn't know a lot about because our employee base did not have enough representation in that group. We didn't really have any expertise. And it's just more altruistic to share knowledge based on what you think people need to know instead of focusing on protecting your reputation or trying to look good for absolutely no reason. That was a very long story, by the way. So I apologize, but I just wanted to talk that through. I don't think you have anything to apologize for, Ariel, for for what it's worth, if anything. And I, I appreciate you unpacking the importance of knowing your audience deeply and tailoring your message to them. Maybe a, a question for you that I think all of us listening or anyone listening would benefit from, whether junior or very senior. You know, you mentioned a lot of times people will repurpose a deck that worked for one client, just use it again for another. 
I think sometimes that's just born from time scarcity, from efficient, you know, this notion of efficiency. When you're coaching senior leaders at Ariel, I'm curious how you sort of talk them through that trade-off between, you know, efficiency and growth and personalization and tailoring. That's a tough one. The scarcity of time, I think, is one of the biggest threats to quality work in corporate America. You know, I, I do think, at least for for our team, one of the things that we often get caught up in, and I think other people will resonate with this too in the industry, is we create our own sense of urgency at, at some points. And I think it's about determining what's a real deadline and what's a self-inflicted deadline. And also remembering that, you know, it's very rare, honestly, that people go back to someone who asks for something and ask for more time. I can't remember the last time I saw someone go to a peer within their institution who's asked them for a deliverable or go to a client and say, we want to deliver something that is incredibly thoughtful and high quality. Do you mind giving us an extra day? People are more embarrassed to ask for extra time than to to produce better work. And so I actually do force the team to really think through, we go through our tracker of deliverables. Is there any way that we can go back and say, I want to be thoughtful and give you my best work. Can we have more time? So I just encourage people to be a bit more brave there. The thing that you're most afraid of is disappointing someone or making them feel as if you're dropping the ball. I think that they would really, really appreciate hearing that you want to give it your all. Of course, there are unavoidable deadlines. But I also think unavoidable deadlines are often things that you can plan against. I can't think of any fixed deadlines that you absolutely cannot trip that you don't know about in advance. Usually, especially in the financial industry, things are done on a quarterly, monthly, even weekly basis. Often, I think that pressure is, is, is created by not planning ahead enough. But for one-off tasks, fire drills, there's usually more flexibility than you think. And it's just really important to just be brave and, and thoughtful. The other thing I would say is I do have a rule that I use myself, which is whenever I think I want to press send, I force myself to wait five minutes because... I don't know. There's just always an extra comma I've missed or something that I could see if I read it again. And I never want to feel that I'm being flippant or sort of trigger happy. I I force myself to take a deep breath, go to the bathroom, grab some water. Five minutes is not a deal breaker. You will see something in that five minutes or at least get more comfortable with what you're sending. So just a little trick that I use to control my own anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people listening would relate to the need for those tricks to, to manage our anxiety. Seems very typical for, for a high achievers and type A people. I appreciate the the thoughtfulness that you you apply to asking for more time, even giving yourself just a little bit of more time, even that five minutes before hitting send. I'm going to run with that myself. That's great advice. Um, I want to shift into the rebrand. You had talked about the rebrand earlier. Just a couple of weeks ago, you announced this rebranding inspired by your teammates and clients. And you had said that, quote, while Aesop's tortoise is still our mascot and slow and steady wins the race continues to be our motto. Today, we are updating our tagline to active patience, end quote. What does active patience mean? Can you unpack that for us and point to some specific changes in Ariel's asset management strategy client service approach or other core operations that demonstrate that tagline and action? Sure. So for us, the rebrand was actually born out of clarifying who we are and how we work rather than shifting that. I think some rebrands are 
really prompted by a complete change in strategic direction. For us, slow and steady wins the race, right? Thinking long-term, looking over the horizon, that's always at the root of what we do. Of course, our firm has transformed astronomically since we were founded in Chicago in 1983 as the first Black-owned asset manager. Now we are or rather mutual fund manager. Now we're a global diversified asset management firm. We have a new private equity firm that we launched two years ago that just closed its first fund at one and a half billion dollars. One of the largest first time funds in history, right? That was yesterday, actually, we just announced that. So part of why I'm exhausted. And, you know, we went from a few teammates to 123 now. Our AUM is you know, double digits, billions, uh, you know, it's it's really, really amazing what we've been able to accomplish, but really the root of why we do it and how we do it has not changed. And we felt like slow and steady wins the race was good, but perhaps it suggests stasis, right? We're not static. We're not sleepy. We are actually rigorously and relentlessly chasing opportunities, assessing changing conditions, seeking opportunities for our clients day in and day out. But maybe the end result is perhaps a longer term approach. And maybe we're not sort of making decisions that are material every single day. But the research behind that, the way our team works and how we serve our clients is relentless. So the reason why we updated to active patients is we just felt that it described who we were a bit better. There is a sense of urgency that is in our blood. So, you know, for those who are going through rebrands and or just thinking about how to communicate to their clients, how their their business strategy has shifted. It's really important to do what we did, which was audience listening. So really deep stakeholder interviews with current clients, prospective clients, prior clients, people who maybe don't work with us anymore and why, employees, which we prefer to call teammates because they're teammates, and really anyone who you've engaged with, philanthropic partners, talk to any and everyone who has crossed your path to understand how you're viewed, where there maybe leave is something that to be desired, where there, you know, there's some white space. And of course, you know, everyone does competitive analysis, but I think one of the things that we found in our competitive analysis is that we don't really have a direct peer. So it was a pretty independent approach to the rebrand. When you look at our website, we don't really look like any other Wall Street firm. It's very contemporary. I'd say we probably took more notes from companies like Nike and Louis Vuitton than <laughs> maybe a Schwab or a T-Row, but we we stand out on our own and we're proud of that. And But we wouldn't have figured out what that would look like or how if we hadn't done that listening. So this comes back to the best communication strategies are born from listening. There's so much to unpack there. And this active patience tagline, the tension there, right? Active patients, this dichotomy that, that the tagline strikes, I think is really fascinating. You know, on one hand, you, you talk about the urgency you feel and, and the, the chasing of opportunities, the success, congratulations of the first private equity fund at Ariel, one of the largest first-time funds in history. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So kudos to everyone at Ariel. Thank you. Next time I see John, I'm excited to congratulate him as well. And on one hand, we look at, you know, where ur- too much urgency can be a bad thing. We look at the, the fallout of FTX and sort of this rapid chasing of growth and opportunity can just lead a firm to fall apart. 
but we need the urgency, right? On the other hand, you look at patients, someone like Warren Buffett, who over many, many decades has built one of the largest you know, investment firms and holding companies on the planet. So I think it's beautiful to see aerial investments strike this balance and really communicate this balance that has already existed within the firm. Yeah. Right. That this rebrand doesn't represent any change in strategy. This is just updating the 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 exterior of the firm to match what's on the inside already and has been on the inside for quite some time. I think that's just that's it's beautifully said. It's beautifully done. I've seen the website. The orange, white, and black looks super crisp. All of the parallax on the website, super modern. I just got to say, I'm like a big fan of of the the digital work y'all did. It's funny if you look back at our old brand. I think what was at least this is my individual opinion. What was striking about it is that it was actually too financy. It was blue and white. Almost every firm in the street is blue and white. (laughs) It was very safe. We're not like the others. And so it was really a way to show who we are, like you said, which is unlike anyone else. Um, It's funny that you say that. Uh, Scholars of finance, our brand is blue and white, little hints of red, very much following suit with the financial firm. But even modern finance companies, fintech companies, I'm, you know, alum of of SoFi, you look at PayPal, you look at Venmo. Um, I remember on my, my iPhone, I have all of my apps sorted into like just 10 folders and on one single screen. And the other day I was looking at my finances folder and it's just all blue, except for the cash app, (laughs) Chase, PayPal, Coinbase, Venmo, SoFi, all of it's blue. And I was like, gosh. At some point, I think you're you're inspiring me. Maybe at Scholars of Finance, at one point, we'll have to rebrand too. Um, I would be happy to support with some ideas. Oh, uh, we would be uh, just beside ourselves to accept that help. Beside ourselves with gratitude, uh, Ariel. Uh, a couple of questions I want to ask on sort of communications and digging into the rebrand a little bit. Communication leaders like yourself have obligations to their firms grounded in professional ethics, similar to how attorneys have obligations to their clients and their professional ethics. How do you handle situations in where in which there might be ethical dissonance, right? As a leader who values integrity, what do you do if your professional duty requires you to speak for a decision or activity that might be at odds with your own values? If you've ever seen that in your career at any point, or even heard secondhand stories of this happening, you know, a lot of our, our listeners either have or may or fear, you know, experiencing this themselves, what they do when something that's happening doesn't quite feel like it's at hundred percent integrity, 100% focused on the client, et cetera. How do you handle, or how do you even think about navigating situations like that personally and professionally? I'm very lucky that in my current role, I'm able to do well while doing good, but that hasn't always been the case. I was a consultant for a very long time. And so we would get assignments all the time where we would be tasked with defending a client or really running offense against perhaps a vulnerable community on behalf of an institution, particularly since I spend a bulk of my time in crisis management. Gosh, where do I begin? (laughs) I will start by saying that one of the most beautiful things about the United States that we need to continue to protect is the right to information. And I do think that far too often companies approach communications with the thought that not everyone in their stakeholder audience deserves to have ample information and that they are inherently putting themselves at risk by disclosing said information. Now, in some cases that is true. For example, if you 
are not ready to provide a material update because it's not done. Absolutely. You would not do premature disclosure. But if there is something that's not quite right, like a, a cyber attack or you know sexual harassment or something that's going on in your institution that is not aligned with your values, my belief is that your stakeholder audience deserves to know that information. It impacts how they make buying decisions, how they engage with you. And there is a way to be on the right side of history. You know, the few times that I've worked on projects where I didn't feel totally good about the client, rather than quit the account, listen, I was able to do this more when I was senior. When I was junior, it was a different thing. I was supporting a boss. But when I was running the account, I think one of the most powerful things that I learned to do was say, this is not a communication problem. This is a business issue. So rather than work on messaging, we want to talk about corrective action that would be required for us to work on this account. And that actually gets the client to sit up straight and say, oh, okay, maybe we need to actually get into a strategy session about what we're going to do to rectify. Then the messaging comes after, as opposed to coming up with your reactive Q&A and your holding statement and feeling good about yourself while people can you know, scramble to cover things up. That's not how the best consulting engagements worked. There was only one instance, honestly, that I can think of where the client wasn't open to doing a strategy session on what the corrective action would be and just wanted messaging help. And we parted ways because it didn't make sense. So it's really about just being brave and pushing your client or whoever the stakeholder is to understand that the root of the issue may or may not be a marketing or communications issue. It's actually a business problem and you can put your best thinking cap on and in some cases can be in the right people. They may not always be communications professionals to determine what we're going to do. Then we can create the messaging, but I don't believe in putting lipstick on pigs. (laughs) I appreciate you unpacking how sometimes when there is that dissonance, you have to challenge the the people, the leaders on their decision, their very decision, right? That requires courage. Sometimes you mentioned as you get more senior, it becomes easier. I've experienced that in my, my own career as well. And I'm curious when you were more junior, you know, when you were earlier on in your career, how did you navigate that? How did you think about, you know, standing up with those clients and for those decisions? Did you go to your manager and, and kind of feed it to them for them to, to action? Or how did you stand up for what you believed is right when you were earlier in your career? You know, I wish I had a beautiful answer for you. It's that period of my life is a bit of a blur because I was so focused on pleasing my bosses and the client and everyone around me. If I could go back and do it again, though, I think I would be, I think I would have been a bit more in touch with my values. I just, I can't say that I made any missteps either. I just, I don't know if that was my focus. I think my focus was on delivering for everyone around me. I think it's a natural thing for a junior person to fall into, but listen, this new generation is different. People keep talking about Gen Z. What I love about Gen Z is that they are truly their own storytellers. They are truly their own evangelists. They take companies to task. They expect more from the powers that be. So honestly, my advice is to bring your full self to work, but perhaps find the most appropriate venues to bring that up. I think going to your manager probably makes a lot of sense rather than directly to the client if you're not, you know, if you're still learning and you only know enough to be dangerous. That's the other thing is. You may have an opinion, but there may be other parts of the risk framework or of the very complex situation that you're working on that you don't fully grasp or understand. 
So I think it's about going to your mentor or your manager to say, here's how I see it. What am I missing? Let's talk this through. I appreciate the nod to humility in that because gosh, I was just talking at um at Yale last night to a bunch of students and was explaining that, gosh, when I look back at 19, 20, 20 year, one year old Ross, you know, as you know, early 30s Ross, when I was in college, I thought that I knew so much and I thought I was so ready to take on the world. And when I look back on that version of myself a decade later, I, I think, oh my gosh, I knew nothing. I knew so little. And I think it's it's really important for us to remember, you know, when we're earlier in our careers that we need to be humble, have a lot of curiosity, seek to understand the complexity in situations, look to others to help us understand the complexity in situations so we can bring forth the most applicable and relevant and useful opinions or perspectives possible. That's in no way to say, I don't think you're, in any way you're suggesting, don't share your thoughts, don't speak up. It's just you know, recognize, you know, know what you don't know, or recognize there's a lot you you don't know you don't know, and talk to others who know more to share your concerns and share your perspectives who might be able to run with it or further inform that perspective. Is that right? That's exactly right. You said it way better than me. <laughs> I will take that as a very, very high compliment. I'm trying to accept you as you and I discussed before the recording. I'm trying, we're trying to learn how to gracefully accept compliments and not not um, shy away from them. Thank you. I can't claim that to be true, though. I think you said it much more eloquently. I know we only have a few minutes left, Ariel. We've got to have you back on at some point. Can I shift us into just three rapid fire questions? The rapid fire round, I'm going to just ask you three questions and just share the first thing that comes to mind. Is that cool? Yeah. Okay. So rapid fire round. First question, what do you think are the best resources for financial news and learning about finance today? <laughs> I still think Barron's is one of the best publications on the street. Yes. Thoughtful content, long form. If you have extra time on a Saturday, read Barron's. Okay. Barron's it is. Another question. You have been so generous with the time that you've given to scholars of finance. Here you are in the podcast. Aerial Investments has, has you know helped, helped our organization. John Rogers has come on the podcast and spoken to our students many times. What stood out to you about our organization and our mission, and why might you encourage others to support our work? The people behind the organization. The reason I connected with you was because I met Jody on your team. She's exceptional. We really connected, and getting to know you has been incredible too. I think when people want to support an institution, they should really think about the humans that actually operate it day to day. There's a lot of opportunities to donate, engage with philanthropies or other nonprofits, but what differentiates them is really whether or not there's true altruism and intellectual integrity behind the mission. So I dig you guys. <laughs> we dig you too, Ariel. We dig you too. Feeling is very mutual. I'll actually throw in one last rapid fire question. Any words of advice, top pieces of advice you would offer anyone listening on how to increase the positive impact that they make in finance? When you acquire knowledge, don't just keep it to yourself. Share it. Be generous. Don't be selfish or hoard access. It doesn't help anybody. Ariel, thank you. Thank you. Sage words of wisdom. Really appreciate having you on. This has been such a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hope we can have you on again soon. And just thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all that you do. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.